0: So anyone listening doesn't have to be afraid of this. I'm always interrupting for comic moments here. So oh, we don't have yes. to be I'm forget. Write yes. it down. Um, people don't have to be afraid of catching on fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Always ask why Five Lash Professionals and Four Lash Professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we are excited to have Michael Beckler on our show. Who's Michael Beckler? Well, you may not know him, but he's a really smart guy. He's a chemist. We got a chemist on the show, guys. This is something we've wanted to do in a long time. He works for a major lash company, and he, uh, yeah, we reached out to him, talking about some other stuff, and then we said, hey, by the way, would you ever want to be on podcast and he was like yeah yeah so we're really excited to have him on because he gives us a lot of well first he says a lot of things that we agree with and then then he kind of also debunks some things that we're wrong about (laughs) like we're like oh yeah well this is the issue right and he's like no 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 it's not or you know he he corrects us which is Always humbling, because when you think you figured it all out, but at the same time you know us, we're always open to changing our minds and changing our opinion, especially when given the facts. And that's why we brought him on, because really, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of misunderstandings about adhesives and how they work, and why not get a chemist to come on who actually understands the science and have him come on and do that. And this is what Tuss loves. This is where the nerd and Tuss comes out. And Tuss, really, it's all about Tuss and Michael talking, because I, I don't have a whole lot to contribute. <laughs> I'm not a chemist, and I'm not a nerd like Tuss. I'm a nerd in a different way. I'm a nerd that does, like, board games. But anyhow, you guys all know that. So before we get into that, though, guess what we have, guys? We have announcements. It's time for a- All right, what's going on? What do we have happening? Well, if everything goes well, the way the life goes as I hope, next week we're we'll going to be announcing or be selling LashCon tickets. Yes, LashCon tickets. That should be on Monday. That's the goal. Monday. What day is that, Paul? I'm Good question, Paul. That, I don't know. That would be Monday the 19th. Yes, Monday Hanukkah. <laughs> How about that? We'll celebrate Hanukkah and sell some tickets to LashCon. So, if you've been waiting, you've been uh, going, come on, guys, when is this happening? Because last year we did a sale in November, <laughs> and this time, because we didn't have our location, we had to wait. But we're, we're really in the next, while well, I'm recording this, I'm super close to signing a deal, being done, and moving on, so we can actually announce tickets, and, um, and go from there. And also, what else is going on? Well, this week, uh, this week you have one more week left to buy the replay up to the 22nd. That's also the time frame. Actually, you'll have to the 23rd to buy LashCon. You'll have the 22nd to buy your tickets for the replay. So if you didn't make it to LashCon, you can buy and listen to all the talks, all 24 sessions, and I promise you, it is well worth it. A lot of wisdom, a lot of good information there. And um, if you... By the way, I know some people reach out to me once in a while and say, hey, I'd like to watch the things. And I'm like, did you go to LashCon? They're like, yeah. I'm like... If you were the last cons already on the app, you just go into the app and go to agenda and you'll see on the Sunday, Monday, November 5th and 6th. You'll see it there, and you can watch it, so you don't have to wait. So you don't have to rebuy it, okay, guys? You bought your ticket last LashCon, you get the replay as part of your thing. And by the way, because it took us so long to get us done, you're going to get like three total months to watch the replay, lots of times. So, all right, replay. Um, what else is going on? We have the pictures from LashCon are up. Link in the bio. You can download and share those with your friends. Download them and share them just with yourself. I don't. it doesn't matter to us. But if you do share them online, tag us, and we'll retag you. And I think that's pretty much – oh, well, we have stuff coming for next year. But I'll just say we have the London Lash Conference, which is going to be in basically um, January. Let me get this. I keep forgetting. January 23rd, we're going to be speaking at the London Lash Conference. So come and see us there. If you're in the U.K. or maybe you're across the way in France or, and, you know, U.K. is a bigger audience for us. So we don't speak French very well. Actually, touch, side note, if you didn't know, touch Tuss used to speak fluent French. She probably hates me saying that, and now speaks it, just can listen, understand it. Me, I took French for one semester to meet a girl. (laughs) And... My professor told me I was dumb, and I dropped out. Actually, once she broke up with me, um, or I broke up with her, I think this was one of the few cases where I broke up with her, I, I stopped taking French because it wasn't worth it. All right, so many useless bits of information about us today. All right, anyhow, that's all we have for announcements. Now let's get into it where we sit down with um, Michael Beckler, and we talk about things that you need to know about adhesives and other fun facts. Hey guys we're in the last cast studios excited to do a first for us we are bringing a scientist on
1: a genuine scientist yes. guys yeah. i'm so excited yes. about this one
0: uh michael is a chemist and he's very familiar with the world of lashes and we're so excited to have him come on and join us today so welcome to the show michael
2: thanks for having me today guys yeah, yeah. very excited to be here
1: michael and i met a while ago and i like picked his brain and I just find it so fascinating. There's so much mystery that the lash industry attributes to cyanoraculites. And they're really, really uh, simple to understand. And I want to bring some of that clarity to our community because I think sometimes we overcomplicate things. So now we get to go straight to the horse's mouth (laughs) and talk to a real scientist about it.
0: Yeah, no, this is exciting. And guys, if you're listening, please pay attention and just hopefully this will make your life easier. If you listen to our podcast, we like to dispel myths. We like to... Remove a lot of fear that runs around our industry that keeps you from doing what you want to do because someone told you you can't do that. But – we're going to get to the real source here and really try to break some things down. I'll probably be mostly absent. I'll just be in the background drinking coffee. Oh, come on. Be Tuss. supportive. I'm supportive. Tuss is so excited to be here. This might be the, one of the most exciting podcasts for her. I don't ever really. Do. Did <laughs> the bit? I'm so
1: excited. So, All right. There. So take it away, Tuss. Okay. Let's talk real briefly about how cyanoraculites are made. One of the questions that I first asked you was, why do they call them solvent-based? You know, um, And for a long time, I was trying to figure out what the solvent was in the cyanoacrylate. and you had a really good answer for me. So I think maybe you could take us back a little bit and explain how our wonderful adhesives are made. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So most of you know, cyanoacrylate is the most commonly used lash glue and adhesive in the lash extension industry. A little bit of background about how it's made. It is actually made in a giant kettle using what's called ethyl-2 cyanoacetate and formaldehyde gas as the solvent. The reason it's solvent-based is because the formaldehyde gas in this reaction is actually working as the solvent. They begin mixing the formaldehyde and ethyl-2-cyanoacetate in a container, and as they're mixing it in the container, the formaldehyde gas is continuously added to it, and as the mixing continues, the formaldehyde begins to condense into liquid, At this point, excess amounts of water, H2O, are produced and evaporated, and throughout this chemical reaction, CA polymer, what we know as superglue or R-adhesive, begins to form. At this point, there's still trace amounts of excess water and formaldehyde that remain, so what they do is they begin heating or cracking the kettle, as they call it, to over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And prior to that, they purged the tank with nitrogen to remove excess oxygen to prevent unwanted reactions. And then this polymer is basically continually heated until it is cracked into less reactive monomer bits that form a crude mixture of monomers that contain these polymer chains. At this point, they go into the kettle and begin to remove these bits of monomers until they're single monomer units that you commonly know as your super glue adhesive.
1: That is so cool. Okay, so let's break this apart just a little bit. So the formaldehyde and the ethyl, is it acetate what was it called again?
2: Yes, it is ethyl-2-cyanoacetate.
1: Ethyl-2-cyanoacetate. Uh, but the formaldehyde, basically, they use that to create this condensation reaction, right? Correct. So when you said they heat it up and then it, part of it like gives off water, I guess you could help us think about Like you boil water in a pot and then it turns it into a Vapors, vapor, right? Yeah. And then it condenses, right? And so Correct. inside the kettle, it's collected.
0: Because it's sealed, right? Nothing's escaping from the kettle at this point. Everything's yes. entrapped in there, right? right? Yes, it is. Sealed. You're not cooking like over a stove.
1: Okay, when you, but, but here's the thing. When you hear formaldehyde, everyone's oh, yeah, alarm bells are, it are like, right now. oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there's formaldehyde in the glue. <laughs> the thing is, is that I want people to understand, and maybe you can elaborate using your science mind and your science lingo. Explain that there's no formaldehyde after it's been purified and cracked, that they use that formaldehyde to create the reaction. Can you explain how it's not formaldehyde in the glue?
2: Yes, there is not formaldehyde that remains in the glue after the cracking process. The cracking process is actually what removes even trace amounts of formaldehyde. That's why when you see on most lash adhesives, you see 99.99% to 100% Mm ethyl-2-cyanoacetate on the MSDS. Small trace amounts of impurities such as carbon may be in there and other things, but it's at such a residual amount that it has little to no uh, adverse health effects or any issues that would cause concern.
1: Right. Correct me if I'm wrong here. It's like when you put eggs in a cake and oil in it, those bits are still in there, but they form with the flour and the baking powder and it creates something different at the end. So it's not like you're serving eggs on a platter with, you know, it's been mixed and it creates something different.
2: Yes. Basically the thermal decomposition that happens throughout this process, as the mixing is happening and the formaldehyde is being condensed from its gaseous state into a liquid, as it's heating, it's being thermally decomposed, and that is what is driving the main reaction between the ethyl-2-cyanoacetate and the formaldehyde, along with the excess H2O.
0: Now, I have a good example. Um, When Tusk makes me food, she always uses anthrax in the food, (sighs) and she says it always is cooked out. And in the process, yeah, she uses it as a as a <laughs> as a flavor enhancer, but it's never had any effects of you are me. so lame. No, I do sorry. not
1: cook anthrax.
0: No, you don't. Uh, but I was going to say that as a takeaway as I listen to this because I see brands do this, and I love you guys, but I think this is a little misleading. Everyone likes to say our adhesive is from all the free, which they're implying. You might be buying from other people who do have formaldehyde or if you buy, I've heard this a lot, if you buy glues off on Amazon and it's a cheaper glue, all those definitely have formaldehyde in them. So is that really anything people need to be concerned about when they're buying adhesives from last brands? I would say the main thing depends on where you're
2: sourcing your adhesive from. Some adhesives could actually contain trace amounts up to a certain point depending on the quality of ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate that that manufacturer is buying. But that is kind of the manufacturer's responsibility. However, even the trace amounts that are contained within there that would be in there are not something that they so much have to slap a warning label on there that says warning contains formaldehyde. If it contained an amount such as like permissible exposure limit that was deemed carcinogenic by OSHA or risk of concern for occupational work Play safety and health, then you would have to have a warning label on there or you would see something that says this product contains formaldehyde. As far as there being trace amounts, most lash adhesives are pure ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate. They don't have any additives. If you see it being 0.01%, it's usually an acidic initiator, which is used to help start pulling that moisture in from the air to initiate the curing process it would not be formaldehyde.
1: Yeah, so just to be clear, the CA adhesive it is not carcinogenic and, and there's no Correct. Uh, OSHA doesn't
0: That's cancer causing basically yeah. saying. It's not cancer causing. And
1: there's correct. no um it is so non-toxic that there's no permissible exposure limits attributed to this uh, adhesive.
2: That is correct.
1: The question that you asked, Paul, you know, are is there trace amounts of 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 formaldehyde? I mean, certainly like a lower grade um, adhesive that hasn't been like refined, like Michael said, might have like little bits of it in. Correct.
2: And when I say bits, I'm talking in the sense of particles per million or billion when I'm referring to trace amounts. We're not talking about milligrams or anything. We're talking about very, very, very tiny trace amounts.
1: Yeah, I love it. So the moral of the story is that you do not need to worry about formaldehyde being in the adhesive. And another thing I'd love to talk about and kind of dispel this myth.
0: Actually, I, can I ask you guys a question? Because yeah. as we're talking about that, you mentioned refining, and maybe it, before we get this, hopefully this relates, but I see people bragging about how their adhesive is more refined. It's medical grade, it's commercial grade, it's all these different grades they have. Do we help people understand what the difference is and what is the norm i mean what most lash glues do are they mostly all medical grade or and how is that because i think that would be helpful for people to understand
2: most lash adhesives if not all lash artists and um, lash professionals should be using medical grade ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate that is what is a common standard in the industry the different grades just refer to the applications that it's suitable for mm-hmm. so ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate as you know is the main ingredient in Gorilla Glue. Mm -hmm. That is not the same grade of ethyl-2 cyanoacrylite that you will find in your lash adhesive, and it has additives and adulterants to help it for its specific application. So in the lash world, ethyl-2 cyanoacrylite is medical grade and usually pure because it is safe and non-toxic for the skin and suitable for medical applications, even such as uh, suturing wounds or sealing wounds.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, how would people know if their adhesive is a medical grade? I mean, obviously, you're not going to go to Home Depot and look for um, <laughs> something that's made for, like, wood or the machinery. Super glue or
0: something like that. You're not going to go buy that type of glue. Is there
1: something it. that they can see discernible on the label? Is it percentage-wise? I would say the
2: number one thing that you could look for is if you see anything other than ethyl-2-cyanoacrylate on your ingredient label or your MSDS sheet that you receive from your manufacturer, that would be your uh, cause for concern. And then you would further inquire um, what adulterants and why they're contained in your formula.
0: And we should explain what MSDS is because I can sure, you right now, some people have no idea what we're talking about.
1: And MSDS is a manufacturer safety data sheet. I think now they're, they're just called SDS, yeah. safety yeah. data sheets now. Because they revamped the formula um, several years ago. And before, when it was an MSDS, the industry decided what they wanted to put in that. It just had to have certain information. Mm -hmm. But now the SDS is regulated, so it follows a format. So everyone from other countries can see exactly what's in it and what are the precautions. So it's more streamlined.
0: And so for cyanoacolids, that SDS or MSDS Mm -hmm. is going to be very simple. It sounds like you would just have that ethyl 2 is there going to be like 18 other ingredients in there or is it really generally just a very, you know, one or two things and that's it.
2: It should just be the ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate, And sometimes in certain lash adhesives, you will see for sensitive skin alkoxy combined with ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate. That's for sensitization purposes and for people with sensitive skin or a blend of those two for different climates, such as high humidity, low humidity, mm-hmm. different temperature ranges, but you should only see one or two ingredients, and those are going to be your cyanoacrylate.
1: What about what you just mentioned, the acidic initiator, which helps to start that bond? is that That's not an adulterant.
2: Most of the time, it's not an adulterant because it doesn't chemically interact with the formulation. It works independently mm-hmm. of it to drive that chemical reaction. However, it's usually in such a low percentage, like 0.01 or 0.001, that it won't be included on the machine or it'll say not listed because they have the option not to list it because, because it's, it's so, so, below, so yeah, small. Below
0: so. It concentration. Well, I was going to say the stuff like carbon black, is that included in
1: that? Because I know that. To no, make the pigment.
2: Correct. Carbon black and hydroquinone are also two other ones you'll commonly see. Hydroquinone basically stops the adhesive from curing within that and keeps it in its liquid state, helping to expand its shelf life. That's commonly regarded as a safe ingredient, nothing that I would say would be an issue of concern for someone. However, the more that you add to that formulation, the more you're going to impact the reaction of that bonding and adhesion process. I would always recommend going with a pure ethyl-2 cyanoacrylite glue, as opposed to something with carbon black hydroquinone, just because it is unadulterated, it's pure.
1: What about the additives methyl methacrylate that creates the thickener? PMMA. Yeah, so that some people might want like a thicker adhesive and one that has a little bit more viscosity to it. You know, seeing an extra ingredient in in there doesn't mean that it's not medical grade, right?
2: Correct, but it could indicate that the other ingredients in there, I don't know at this point to my best knowledge if there is medical grade PMMA or carbon black. So the ethyl 2 cyanoacrylate could be medical grade, but the ingredients contained in combination with it, like hydroquinone in others, could not be.
1: Yeah, I remember we had uh, Dr. Matthew Zyrus on the podcast, and he is a specialist in contact dermatitis. And I asked him about the MMP or and the um, the carbon black, and I said, are there any s- situations where it is an allergen? And he said, no, on either of those two, they are not an, known allergens. And in, in, and neither has he seen that in his practice. So it's not something that's going to be contributing to contact dermatitis. I have seen in some lash circles people say, oh, they're not allergic to the adhesive, they're allergic to the carbon black, and I just want to squash that, that the carbon black is carbon, which is it's a it's toxin ab- yeah. absorber, and it is not something that the human body is allergic to generally. So,
0: One other thing too, as since we're on this thing about refining and stuff like that, I've seen some brands talk about we refine ours four times. It's been refined two times. Is that what makes the difference between a medical grade and other is how much it's refined, I guess? Or is that just people just making up words and sharing things that that, who knows if it's really relevant or not? No,
2: it is correct. It's the degree to the level of which it's refined. So pharmaceutical or medical grade is well, pharmaceutical grade and medical grade are your highest grades uh, commonly materials. That's because they have the least amount of additives, adulterants, preservatives. They're the raw actual material themselves, where as you go down the ladder, there's food grade, cosmetic grade. There's a wide range. I would always suggest staying away from cosmetic grade during formulation and always try to go pharmaceutical grade. It's a little more expensive, but the results and benefits of using pharmaceutical grade products are a lot more beneficial to the consumer and the manufacturer as far as reputability goes and sustainability.
1: The cosmetic grade is just one step above industrial and the pharmaceutical is the best.
0: Like super glue, is that industrial then? Is that the standard or gorilla glue? Is that just like typical?
1: Industrial.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll stop using that in my clients then. <sighs> oh, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, with your anthrax.
0: Yeah, um, I used anthrax for glue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What was I going to say? I don't um, know. I'm just oh, trying okay. to disrupt everything here. So let's talk about off gassing. Now, I have heard some lash brands talk about that there's formaldehyde in the adhesive and it off gases. It, it gives off molecules of, of formaldehyde. And I think what's happening is they're confusing. I mean, formaldehyde can be a wonderful preservative in products like shampoo, conditioner, bath gel, that kind of stuff. Why? Because you buy this product. And once it's manufactured, it goes on a truck and it goes sits in a warehouse and then it goes to your bathroom and it gets really warm in there and it gets really moist in there. And so it needs to be able to kill bacteria. I know that formaldehyde is a scary ingredient, but they have other molecules with different names that will just give off a little bit of chemical that has a preservative effect which kills harmful microbes. And I think that what's happened a lot of times is that maybe some brands think that that's what's happening in the adhesive. Can you talk about that, that that is not what's happening?
2: Yeah. So basically as this process of applying the adhesive is occurring, your polymer is reacting and drawing in excess amounts of moisture. This polymer is basically seeking out out of the H2O molecules, it wants the OH portion of it and it wants to take an H. Those are known as hydroxyl ions. Mm -hmm. These hydroxyl ions are what builds these bridges throughout this process and creates these nice flexible and non-rigid bonds that give lash extensions their unique uh, characteristic.
1: Can I interrupt you real quick right there? So so just so that people are following you, when we say that the adhesive bonds, it we it bonds through anionic polymerization, it, layman's terms will frequently say it takes an oxygen molecule and that's what initiates that bond and it starts, it, it goes from a monomer into a, a hard polymer like a plastic, right? So right. what you're saying is that when it comes into contact with the oxygen, it's seeking the, O8. can you re- repeat that part again?
2: Yes. So when it comes in contact with your lash, it is also reacting, as you said, anionic polymerization. It is reacting with the anions of the, on the surface of your lash, all those hydroxyl ions, and it is drawing moisture from your lash as well as from the atmosphere around your lash. So that is what is driving the curing process. That process right there creates heat and energy. And that is what drives that burning effect that you're feeling as these lashes are curing.
1: So you mean the fumes, like sometimes you get that fume real close to the eye and if it's open a little bit, the client's going to squeeze her eyes shut and feel like, Ooh, I feel a little bit of fume there. So what you're saying is that that desire to close the eyes shut and that fumey feeling is caused by the polymerization reaction?
2: Correct. The curing process.
1: Okay. Now, that is not anything that you can avoid, correct? Correct. It is part and parcel of using a cyanoacrylate.
0: Is that the same thing when we see people taking cyanoacrylate and pouring it on cotton and seeing it smoking and it's burning, but that's a more exaggerated situation? Is that the same kind of process that we're talking about?
2: I would say it's a more exaggerated type of situation just because our skin actually, and hair follicles work differently because of the oil uh, composition and the basic general makeup of them. But that ethyl-2 cyanoacrylyte will just start rapidly polymerizing the second it comes in contact with moisture in the air instantaneously. And one of the big things with polymerization, it's a concept you want to avoid it when creating polymers. It's known as auto-acceleration. It's where polymers begin to rapidly polymerize and create these gigantic chains. And that's how uh, lab accidents can happen. Chemical incidents, uh, explosions, things of that nature. So in a sense, during that curing process, that auto acceleration process is happening. And the only reason that polymerization stops and curing process ends is because it has no more adhesive left Mm. to work uh, and turn the monomer into a polymer chain. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to continue adding adhesive to it, That process would just keep on going because there's always going to be hydroxyl ions from H2O in the air.
1: This is so exciting. Just to clarify,
0: so just <laughs> so anyone listening doesn't have to be afraid of this. I'm always interrupting for comic moments here. So oh, we don't yes. we have to yes. be I'm afraid. forget. Write yes. it down. Um, people don't have to be afraid of catching on fire. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. Don't worry about that.
0: That's by the way, I don't know if you <laughs> see these ads are done from little things where they show cotton you know burning because, like you said, they're adding so much adhesive on it, right? They're just pouring yes. like half a bottle of, of adhesive, which is saying that continues the acceleration i guess because it it has so much to burn right
2: and cotton is such a dry source over time as you're sucking out moisture of cotton which cotton itself doesn't have much moisture in it because of the way it's been manufactured and processed Mm -hmm. it has no more moisture to give and it's constantly giving off heat and heat plus a dry uh source of ignition that can create a chemical reaction in a chemical fire
1: Okay, so I'm really chomping at the bit to explain or to talk about this. Okay. So uh, let's go into a deeper dive on you know what happens molecularly when it is rapidly polymerizing and it's curing really fast. It's, it's becoming a hard plastic. I have heard it said. Make, correct me if I'm wrong. That when you have hot water, the molecules in the water are moving around a lot faster, right? That's why you use hot water to make tea because it's moving correct. faster. Okay, right. So when it's polymerizing. And there's a lot of source still, like a lot of oxygen, moisture. It's rapidly moving. And the moving so fast is what creates that friction or the heat, right? And that's, you know, with the, the, the fuel source, like the dry cotton, it can ignite. Can you confirm that the heat is generated by those fast-moving molecules?
2: Correct. And that is a chemical concept, which big word coming out here uh, involves thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And basically that involves entropy, where as these molecules begin to move around and get excited, you reach a high degree of uh, randomness and a high amount of energy throughout that process. So they're moving and crashing all about flying throughout uh, so rapidly and about as opposed to when they're cold and held still together and in place, that that can actually be a source of ignition and be a source of off-gassing or fuming.
1: Okay. And let's just talk about the danger of this. I think in the lash application, there's very little chance of this because we're using such small amounts of adhesive. We might be swiping it onto the lash and maybe swiping a little excess onto the pad, but that is not enough to cause a fire Oh, correct.
2: It wouldn't do that, just especially going back to before what I said. Uh, the composition of our eyelashes are so drastic from what you see a cotton ball that's made of like nylon, polyester, yeah. cotton fibers, anything of that nature that's synthetically or naturally manufactured. Our eyelashes and our skin are made heavily of oil, water, and proteins. They don't burn in that same way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when I was it's looking at It's good
0: to know because I could I have sworn I, my lashes have caught fire oh, before. Oh, shut <laughs> up. My goodness. <laughs> it must have been something else. Maybe I passed no, gas or something. No,
1: I want people to not worry about this. Like, if you look in the literature There's no need to worry about, about cyanoacrylate burns, it's usually a child who's playing with it and it gets onto their pants and, and they spill a lot with those cotton pants or you know polyester.
2: Yes, in excessive amounts, it will cause burns. But the degree at which lash artists apply it to the lash region in the eye region, especially professional technicians, it would not be a cause of concern. Thank
0: you so much. Yeah. yeah.
1: We're not pouring the bottle yeah. over the person's face. Correct. We don't do that.
0: I was trying to come up with our dumb joke. And I was talking about the whole saying, you know, you get excited and everyone gets really worked up. And I was like, you know, kids get really excitable and they, they might just combust. They are like
2: little molecules.
0: Yeah, they are like little <laughs> molecules. And it's, and then and, and that's why you can say that I'm on fire. All know. right.
1: All right, yeah, yeah. you clown. All right. So um let's go back to you said all the energy has been used up and it cures, right?
2: All of the monomers.
1: All of the monomers. Okay. You know, so you've got your adhesive. Careless you've got your, your words, by the way,
0: there. Uh, so yeah. I get so excited.
1: <laughs> so you, get, you, get, you have your extension. You dip it in the adhesive and the adhesive is like the monomers, right? And you paint that onto the lash and then it cures. Basically, you're saying all the monomers have been used up there. So it's no longer reactive. It's no longer seeking moisture it becomes inert.
0: Or becomes plastic, right? Yes, it becomes
1: plastic. Okay, yes, now it goes from its
2: liquid, sticky, and tacky state to a flexible plastic resin.
1: Fantastic, okay, love it. So, can we talk a little bit now about pH?
0: Which is, by the way, the big rage right now online. I see it all the time people talking about pH, pH. You need to know the pH of the lashes before you decide to do the lash extensions because bad pH means it's going to be pushing away the lashness and, and the glue won't be reactive and it will have issues. I
1: think that every self-respecting lash artist is always looking, how can I improve my service? How can I do things better? And we know that it's a chemical. So if we look at the broad spectrum of what does this chemical like, it must like either an acid or an alkaline
2: environment. Thank yeah. you.
1: In, in order you. To, to to cure, right? So so I think it's coming from a good place oh, it definitely but, is. But can you talk a little bit about there are many lash brands that sell different products like primers and things like that or super bonders. And we hear a lot about this creates the proper environment for that curing to happen. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And actually pH in those primers and bonders and sealants all kind of go hand in hand together. So the pH of natural lashes, as everybody does know, which it's true, does have an effect on lash retention. The one thing to keep in mind is the skin around your eyes and your face is naturally acidic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't so much want to be neutral. And what works best for cyanoacrylate adhesive is a neutral pH of seven, Mm -hmm. believe it or not. Great. Too acidic of an environment is going to provide longer cure times and it's basically because going back to what we talked about with the hydroxyl ions that i keep speaking of
1: mm-hmm.
2: in acidic environments you actually have an abundance of these hydrogen protons floating around and less of those hydroxyl ions available
1: so that would mean that those time the curing time would be extended then because it Correct. in order to to bond it wants the ions
2: Yes, it wants the hydroxyl ions and not the hydrogen protons.
1: Uh huh. Okay. So, what would be something that would be an acid, like a, like a toner that has like a glycolic kind of acid or that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, like phytic acid, which is a weak alpha hydroxy acid, things of that nature. Like a
1: lactic, those kinds of things. Yes. Okay.
2: Steric. Other than that, it does sound good that, okay, well, let's just jump to the alkaline side. Then if it wants all the hydroxyl ions, I'm just going to jam it with those.
1: Like a detergent, like a strong detergent, right?
2: Correct. Or like just straight up like a hydroxide formulation of something. But if you have too basic of an environment or too alkaline of an environment, you're going to have too fast of a cure time. And that's basically going to result in these short, misformed, uh, like not as long polymer chains in comparison to if you have a neutral environment, you allow the reaction to progress naturally as naturally as it can in its given environment. And that allows these polymer chains to form as intended at their own speed and basically cross link and become more elastic and flexible when the environment is too acidic or too alkaline, both. All these instances result in like brittle and shorter chains. And because the chains are shorter, they're not as elastic. Um, so it's going to like crumble
1: more. Yes. So you don't want it to be too basic or alkaline because then it's it, it cures too quickly. Is that
0: something we can actually control in the last room? Or are we able to create an environment that's right in the middle that's not two-way? It would way be the, the eyeball.
1: You would put that on the eyelash.
2: I would say... When looking for an appropriate primer to use, I would look for something that will take your acidic lash environment just during the time of application closer to a neutral environment. If you would, you could do that using a few things. What's common in the lash industry that they already do right now is kind of like misting with H2O before priming. Uh, A lot Mm -hmm. of that washing, they usually do with DI water. And I know it goes through like a sonic, uh, like a purifier type Mm -hmm. of like nebulizer. So when it gets atomized throughout that, it further refines that too. And it neutralizes it and brings it up to like a natural pH. So I know that's commonly used in the lash industry. Outside of that, I don't know what much you could do to control that because you also don't want to put... Harsh or abrasive alkaline substances that are going to suck out the moisture because, like alcohols do in an acidic environment, both things that are too acidic and too basic are going to pull moisture from your natural lash and also affect them and pull nutrients.
1: Yeah. So I want to eliminate like the stress on trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. If you could just say to the lash artist, Using a mild cleanser, most cleansers that are formulated for the eyes have to be mild because it is the thinnest area of skin on the human body and it is much more uh, delicate. So there's not going to be a lot of detergent-based, you know, adhesives uh, or uh, cleansers. So if the body is naturally acidic, couldn't just a basic lash cleanser bring that up to a neutral?
0: Um, Or do you have to use primer? Is that really the best way to get
2: you there? I would suggest using, obviously, proper hygiene is always important, like proper cleansing of the lash region and area, especially when you're frequently getting extensions is always important. So I'd say that's number one. Lash health is overall, because if you don't have a place to place the extension, then it doesn't matter how uh, hydrated or anything they are. So I'd say lash health comes first.
1: I also think that if the the lash is really crusty, um, with a lot of biological detritus, um, you know, just those dead skin cells, that is more acid. Environment, um, so you probably you need to clean that off to c- bring it up to neutral, and then so my question would be: is after you rinsed it, I usually rinse with saline solution. Some people will use distilled water. That is adding moisture to it, much in the same way that misting is, right? Could that be, or or do you s- uh, suggest the misting as a separate set, step?
2: I would say, dependent on each lash artist, because they kind of have their own process. Mm -hmm. Some people use primer and skip the misting step. So it really depends on what your process is and how it's already set up. I will always say if what you're doing now works for you, don't change anything that you're doing. You know, I'd say further explore why you're doing or what you're doing and why it works for you. I would say always try to look deeper into that aspect of it, because that's kind of how we discover new things. But I would always suggest using a primer for the best adhesion just because primers give it a more suitable environment for that lash to adhere to.
1: Okay, let's talk about this.
0: Yeah, because I, I think for Tuss, has not used primer since… Two thousand six, I think is yeah. last time.
1: But I wanna yeah. t- I I wanna talk, I wanna be yeah. open. I'm I you can change we my can mind. Learn, yeah. One of my thoughts on it, sometimes lash artists struggle with their retention and they are constantly looking for the silver bullet that is going to solve their problems. And they think maybe it's this cleanser, maybe it's this product, maybe it's the temperature, maybe it's the primer, right? And I have long said that you can solve many, many of these problems just by better application of the adhesive creating the best possible mechanical fit and making sure that both sides of the extension and the hair are thoroughly wet
0: with the adhesive
1: yeah getting more surface area covered is going to create a stronger bond i'm not saying that you can't get that by using you know primers and stuff like that but i know that you can solve a multitude of problems just by increasing or improving your adhesion
0: or a simple way to put it is just using more glue I think we tried to get such a small amount of glue to get faster and quicker and, and more efficient, but we saw this with our own team. They would get less and less glue to the point where the lashes just would pop off if you just touched them. And I think we realized that the big key wasn't always all these other things, at least for us, was actually if we just got more adhesive in there, still needs to be elegant, can't be big globs of glue. I'm not saying that we're not advocating big, ugly-looking attachments,
1: but it it still needs more than what a lot of people right now currently think they need. So if if we do a thought experiment, my point, and maybe you can comment on this, Michael, is that, okay, you've got one test that you use the smallest amount of um, surface area and you bond it like you just normally would an eyelash. And the second one, you put the bonder, uh, the primer on, and you use the same bond, the same small surface area. And then the third one, you use no bonder and you use a, str- a longer area and you no get that primer. best yeah, yeah the best possible fit of those three which one's going to last the longest i mean i guess the question would be the two here that one's one's got the primer and one doesn't
0: and the third one has more glue in a larger area of the if it's such a attached. small
1: area how beneficial is that primer on that small surface area right the, well, I, well let him answer okay. the question <laughs> sorry i guess you're
2: fair. good I would say that it is beneficial because it's going to make it easier for that adhesive to make that initial contact and connect to more of those anions that I referred to earlier when it makes contact with your lash. However, I completely agree with you that the number one important factor of lash retention is the lash application process, especially finding a mechanical suited fit lash for each individual customer that those two alone, I think are the biggest challenges in the lash industry today. I think that's where a lot of people see the retention issues. And to your point of not putting enough of the adhesive on, I think that is always something that could be an issue because if you're not giving it enough adhesion to stick to, cyanoacrylate is very, very powerful. But if you don't provide enough for the amount of weight that you're going to attach to this, like you said, very tiny surface area, you're not going to get the best adhesion possible. So even if you do a little more and you think you're being excessive, like you said, as long as you're going about it in an elegant manner, we're not pouring it on no. anybody like we were yeah. talking about yeah. earlier. I think that's the main important thing. Is
0: application. I love it. Which I think for you is the big reason why you back in your early days decided to abandon primer. Because Tustany does, and for, uh, we've seen lash artists see her work go, oh, she does lashes wrong. We joke sometimes because she does paint like the whole lash and then, or the extension, even and, with and the patch, volume, and then attaches the extension like a larger area on it. And because of that, she gets amazing retention because there's so much attachment, it's, there's so much surface area, it's connected, it creates a lot better. Bond, but there's a lot of people just like, we just want the smallest little tip. Just get that little area, attach it, and hopefully the primer will make up for it, which sounds like we've been wrong on this. Primer does help, but it can't really compete to, I think, a larger area of yes. attachment. Primer
2: is not going to save you from poor application. I think. Yeah. Okay. That, that is one thing I will say.
1: Yeah. I love it's- it. Okay. So my mind has changed. I think that I'm going to advocate as always that you use a larger surface area, the right amount of glue, and you get the best mechanical fit. Then also you're going to use a primer because it's going to create the environment that's just perfect for it. Now I was talking to a company that does lashes. And one of the things that they were saying is that they don't cleanse, they just prime. And can you talk about that? I think my personal feeling is that they should be clean and then the primer should be put on. You've got to remove some of that stuff just by putting the primer on. It's not going to negate all that biological detritus.
2: Yes, absolutely. So one main important reason to clean your lashes Is because as you said all that built up sebum oil all of that contains what is known as lipids and these lipids love to sink their way back into your skin sometimes or through your lash adhesive and prevent it from forming those nice long flexible bonds that we keep talking of so it basically interferes with the bonding and adhesion process and could create deformities in the bond itself or throughout the curing process, which is going to lead to retention issues. So you always want to give it a nice, clean, smooth surface area to be applied to.
1: Right. So what you're saying is that even if there's oil present, this, the adhesive is going to bond, but the lipids present could possibly create flaws or not flaws, but prevent it from bonding, creating those long chains that it wants to. And because of that, it's not as durable.
2: Yes, it could prevent or inhibit where, as we talked about, the longer it takes to cure, it's going to result in those shorter chain bonds, which is going to result in poorer retention, less elasticity and flexibility in your lashes.
1: Okay, that's cool. I want to jump to another thing. It's kind of on the same topic, I think. Some brands and some people have ta- to advised um, selling their clients primers and then use the primer on a daily basis to quote unquote strengthen the bond. Can you explain why they would think that or say that?
0: Actually, it wasn't primer. It was it was super bonder.
1: Super Yeah, they yeah. apply
0: super after like the next day, or you know, as a way that they say we. Not activate, but just helps strengthen Because bo- I, the... I
1: remember when we talked last, Michael, you've got some wisdom to say about this. Can you share it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So super bonders are becoming extremely popular in the eyelash realm. A lot of the reason is because I wouldn't so much say that they strengthen the bond as much as they protect that adhesive. So they basically work to put a protective coating around your adhesive that's going to help mitigate some of like your common environmental factors. You know, if you go to the gym and you're an active person, uh, high humidity, low humidity, it's meant to give you more flexibility to do what you want to do. That being said, applying those primers, because a lot of them have film forming properties, Mm -hmm. I would suggest never applying them on a daily use because you're going to cause residual buildup on the outside layer of your adhesive. And that's gonna cause stress, strain, and also just kind of clumping Gunky. within the eyelash with residue.
1: It's like wearing too much hairspray over and over and then it like starts to crack and becomes silver, right? Or like too yeah. much hair gel. <laughs> like I yeah, yeah. and look, it
2: like flakes off and yeah. it's white. That's very similar.
1: Let me just tell you a little story. When I was I was 15 and it was PE class and I was all stressed about after PE, my hair looked terrible. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to put a lot of aquanet in my hair. Like back back then, it was that cheap hairspray. And I put it on, and I'm like, oh, this is great. Every day, like, I didn't wash it. Like, every day, I'm like, this is great. This is almost like a helmet. Like, I look great, <laughs> like, from PE. By the end of the week, I looked at my hair. I touched it, and the whole thing turned silver. People were like, what is up with your hair? I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's an experiment gone bad. <laughs> so anyway, yes, I so learned, good. you know, no, the film properties are not good. So, yeah, which is kind of similar to the blooming
2: effect that you see in eyelash adhesives sometimes when it cures too quickly. That's a cracking of the one layer adhesive shrinking mm-hmm. over top of the other, and that's what's causing that white blooming effect. Same can happen in hairspray.
1: Wow. And that's called chlorosis?
2: Blooming. Blooming. Okay. 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 In the eyelash adhesives.
1: Very good.
0: So, I guess when it comes to the advice to put a super on, Afterwards, every few days, does that help at all? Like, if you limit it, like you don't do it every day, but maybe you do it once a week. Is that actually going to help lashes? I guess last longer. Then I would
2: say it's going to help lashes last longer, especially because throughout that process, you're supposed to be washing your lashes normally, like yeah. you would normal skincare maintenance regimens. Your shampoo naturally is going to have some detergents and surfactants that are going to start working against you in your favor. So, kind of just. Putting on a new jacket every few days, if you think of it like that, would be beneficial in my opinion. Now, the one thing to always remember is the lashes are on that 30, 60, 90 cycle. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard unless you're on it to understand like, hey, my lashes are going to fall out soon. Or so sometimes people may correlate like, well, I use this bonder and I have great retention and then I don't use it and my lashes don't last as long. They could always be at the end of their cycle or something. So there's always a difference between causation and correlation, I like to say.
1: Thank uh, you thank so you. much. You were just like, yeah, I I had somebody say to me that she uses an oil-absorbing product on the eyelid and that when she does that, the lashes last longer. And I said, you know, I think it might be correlation. I don't think it's the product that you're putting on the skin that's affecting the... Retin- I could be wrong, but I didn't think so. But, but I
0: do think we this is new to us about the whole idea of using super bonders because I think the idea is that some people, I think it was explains that it helps to re-engage or re-enact the adhesive but we know that the glue is inert right it's not it's it's, used up all that it's not reforming and rebonding again in that process correct
2: so basically how that super bonder is working as that adhesive is breaking down and those chains are starting to kind of break and Mm -hmm. make cracks that super bonder is going to go in as kind of a sealant that's why some people call them sealants in a sense and you'll always see uh dimethicone, silicone-based products are very common in them. It's because they're good at very much so seeping in those cracks and Mm. filling those cracks. So other impurities, environmental stress factors, sweat, things that are going to break down that adhesive won't have as easy of a time creeping into those cracks and further breaking it down.
1: Now, what about putting like an alcohol based product on the lashes? Because sometimes the fans can close with just a little bit of oil in it. Even if the client is cleaning their face, the fans can still stick together and look kind of spiky. So I have heard some circles say, oh, you can just brush a little bit of alcohol on it. Would the alcohol, like an, an isopropyl alcohol, would that be dehydrating a bond? Can you talk about that? So alcohol primers, basically,
2: they work very, very similar to your hydroxide-based primers that we were speaking of earlier. They have hydroxyl groups on them, those OH groups I keep bringing up Mm -hmm. that these cyanoacrylate adhesives love, and that's because those hydroxyl groups will go in there, cleave, and open that monomer bond up. So they have the ability to become miscible, I guess, in a sense, not soluble, but Mm -hmm. miscible, and make it in a more workable state is the way I'll put it.
1: Now, can you talk about, I just heard you use the term miscible, and I don't know that. It's the opposite of soluble?
2: Miscible is when things form together in solution, but not chemically react, if that makes sense. Oh. So like they'll form a uniform homogeneous mixture, like water and glycerin is like kind of one of the better mm-hmm. examples I can give, because you can mix the two together to a point, but water maintains its own properties in there and glycerin maintains its own properties.
1: So they're not creating a new cake.
2: Correct. They're not creating a new chemical. It's just water and glycerin in there, but it looks like it would be all One
1: thing. Is that a miscible bind? I don't know if I'm using the term right. Would that also a Newtonian solid, like you take baking soda and water and you put it together or like sand and water? Like you put it together and you can, if you put it in your hand, you press it I really would quick. say
2: food coloring and water is probably the best description. Oh,
1: okay, okay. So like okay I get it.
2: Food coloring stays food coloring. The water still water, but it all is red or blue yeah. or yellow. Brown. Okay,
1: miscible. Okay, that's a new one. I love it.
2: Yes, but if you add enough food color to that bottle of water, at a point it would become insoluble and actually you would start to see like a defined separation where they would not become miscible anymore. I got it. Solubility and miscibility extremely related. To yeah, each they're same. like
1: sisters. Okay, yes. <laughs> so that leads me to one more question. I have heard it said that a clear adhesive, because it is pure, it is more concentrated as opposed to an adhesive with carbon black because that extra ingredient in it makes it not as strong as the others. Can you comment on that? Is it negligible?
2: I would say depending on the concentration or amount of carbon black in your product, to a degree it is because that's less monomers available that are able to polymerize. And by taking away those monomers, you're taking down your degree of bonding Mm -hmm. essentially or your ability and degree of bonding potential. So adding ingredients to that and taking it away from a pure state in a sense Yes. But is it going to have the same bond strength? Yes, because it's still ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate. I know that's kind of like a goofy way to wrap your head around it. You will get more out of a pure solution of ethyl-2 cyanoacrylate than you would with hydroquinone and carbon black just because there's less monomers there to polymerize. But it'll still have the same properties,
0: same bonding strength.
1: Yeah. So technically you can measure the difference, but is it really meaningful? No. Yes. Yeah.
0: Which is, I think, what we see a lot in our industry where it's something is you mathematically, you could say, yep, yeah, there's a difference. We're going to break it all down. But practically speaking, everyday yes. usage, it's not like discernible.
2: I think that's the major thing, too. A lot of the times, especially in the cosmetic industry, a lot of people always are looking for these black or white answers. But as you said, on what scale do you want them? Because, on a research level, as we were talking about like exposure limits earlier and particles per million being trace amounts, most people probably think trace amounts means like I can see that on the ingredient label. Where in my background, I think of trace amounts as like extremely small, itty bitty particles out of a million or billion air particles.
1: So speaking of those trace amounts, let's just go back full circle to when the adhesive bonds and it's shedding off some of those molecules, and that's what gives that stinging sensation. Technically, that's tiny little bits of formaldehyde, but is it meaningful? Is that enough to cause an allergic reaction?
2: No, it would not be enough. And uh, even according to like OSHA, permissible exposure limits... Uh, you're looking at uh, 0.75 ppm over the course of eight hours and no lash extension uh, session is eight hours. They do have a short term exposure limit of 2 ppm over the course of every 15 minutes. Uh, however, I still don't see that that tiny, tiny bit amount, the particle per million or particle per trillion that I'm referring to would not uh, like, be an issue of concern or adverse health effects in any such way.
1: So Michael, is it even measurable, that small amount? Do you know what the parts per million is when it's, it's creating that reaction?
2: You could measure it with really fancy, expensive, fun equipment, but it's not so much as a health hazard to the point where OSHA is going to come in and do that. that it's not a, a potential health risk. You can measure those things in an analytical lab setting or a research laboratory setting, but in a normal lash setting, it'd be extremely difficult to measure.
1: Yeah. So this goes back to what we were just talking about. It is something that you could measure, but is it meaningful? Not at all. Nah.
0: In fact, we actually had, in our salon, we had bought a device that did measure the air and the particles per whatever. Parts per million. Parts per million. What are you guys PPM. talking about? Yeah. <laughs> but it, we actually found out that um, Santa Acolite, it didn't it register. It didn't even it register. Never registered. It, just, it didn't even move the needle. if we used acetone, it would set that thing off. Yes.
2: So certain devices and instruments that you will buy for gas detection are commonly measuring four substances, hydrogen sulfide, ketones, methyl ethyl ketones, CO and CO2, Mm -hmm. typically. And then commonly like hydrocarbon gases like propane, butane, things of those nature. But yeah, acetone, if you put it by a bottle of acetone, it'll- It
1: really moves the needle for
0: sure. In fact, the guy, (laughs) even when we had Osha at our place once, he actually said, acetone's a bigger concern for me than your glue.
2: Yes, exactly. And people very, very easily and commonly use acetone all the time without. Yeah, exactly. So
1: I just want to go full circle and just hit on some best practices that lash artists can have. So number one is cleansing with a mild cleanser. Remove all the oils, the lipids, the dead skin cells, all the crust, and then use a primer, which is new to us. We've been kind of the- I, I change. I stand corrected. Also, you want to use the most, get as much surface area as you possibly can and get the best mechanical bond for the longest, the longest, um, Yeah. Yep.
0: And you can't catch, people can't catch, people can't can't catch catch on fire. fire. Yes, you will not catch on fire. 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 Don't worry about the
1: formaldehyde. It is not anything that OSHA is even concerned about. It's not a health hazard. There's no formaldehyde in the glue, even though that's one of the ingredients that they first used to create it. It's not in the final product.
0: Yeah. Right. Oh, and super which is new to us too. The idea that you do use superbond super bonder to help as the, I guess, adhesive wears over time. You to two want to help to fill in the cracks, so that at least gives you a little bit more longevity potentially with the lashes, which is something kind of exciting to learn. Because I think we came out on one of our episodes, and I think we totally poo pooed that idea. So, stand <laughs> so we stand corrected, which is good. That's why I mean, we come and have people like you come on who know a lot more than us and help you us. Smarty learn. pants. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I try. I'm yeah. so
1: honored. I'm really thankful for... Um, oh, I'm
0: honored. Thank you, guys. You've was,
1: got a great brain to pick.
0: There's probably a lot more we can go oh, over We'll have and to have you on again. Dig deeper on some stuff, but it would be great to have you, if you're open to it, maybe next year, we'll have you come back and we go in some more stuff. Absolutely. And teach us where we're wrong some more. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and allowing us to take a, yeah. a crack at that brain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. This has been great.
0: Guys, that's a wrap we are done we are out of here thank you so much for hanging out with us today I want to ask you to please follow us on Instagram at LashCast and at the Last Conference and remember to subscribe share and review on behalf of my Lash artist in the Pear Tree Tusney, as well as our special guest Michael I want to thank you for taking some time to listen keep on lashing and remember you have a friend in the lash industry